Yeah. <laughs> so uh, if you've got, I, I think the best way to just say it is uh, if you've got a Bible, let's turn to uh, 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 13. We are there again uh, together this morning, and we're going to be looking at verses, uh, actually the end of verse 5, uh, but uh, for uh, starting off uh, together this morning, just want to recap everything we've talked about. I know it's a lot. It'll take us a while to read through all of this, but uh, there in uh Chapter 13, Paul tells us, he says, Love is patient and kind. Love does does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. And uh, these these last couple things, actually, uh, this last one, this uh, idea of being resentful is the thing we're going to focus on this morning. But before we even get to that, just to give you a a recap of what we talked about last week. Last week, we made this transition uh, in these two verses uh, where uh, Paul starts telling us everything that love isn't. And uh, the big thing that we walked away with is, is, is that Paul isn't just simply waxing poetic here about love. He's, he's not trying to give us uh, some uh, nice thing that we can put up on our walls, that we can uh, embroider and, and hang all over the place to uh, remind ourselves da- on a daily basis what love is and, and how it should be. He's actually saying uh, this is who we are and who we aren't. Uh, if, if you were able to uh, be with us last week, you will remember that every time that Paul refers in this passage to love, he actually uses the article, and so he says, the love. He, he's actually saying Jesus. Jesus is this way. And, and so when he says Jesus is not this way, he, he, he is at the same time saying this is how we are. And so when he says love is not arrogant, love is not rude, lo- love does not insist on its own way, he's actually saying that you and I, that is exactly the way we are. That this list of isn'ts that we've kind of gone into now, uh, as we wrap up uh, verse 5, is all the things that we can hope to do on our own. We said last week the, the last hard truth we had to come to and realize and just own is that this is the best we can hope to do when we are left to our own devices. That love is beyond us without Jesus. It is impossible for us to love well if we don't have Jesus in our life. So we actually know about it. We, we even said last week that the, the Greeks had uh, at least four words to refer to love, different ways to refer to love. They, they knew about love. They, they studied love. They thought about love a lot. In the same way, in our own culture, you can think about all of the things that we consume that are wrapped up in the idea of love and how to love well. We have seminars and movies and books and, and talks and messages and, and just all of the things that we fill our life with trying to figure out how to love better. It is a trillion dollar industry. And Paul says, hey, none of that is going to work without Jesus. That essentially all of us are the guy sent to the grocery store with a list from his wife for what to get and we've forgotten our cell phone. Because we all know what that guy looks like, right? You walk into the store and he's just standing there in front of the shelf, blank-faced, no idea what to get. You see that guy and you're like, I think that guy has a lift from his wife and he doesn't have a cell phone to call home and ask which one exactly am I supposed to pick up. Because you, you pass him by, there's no movement, he, he's just looking at this, he, he could be staring off into oblivion, he has no idea what in the world he's looking at and you pass by and you're like, I think I know what's going on here. You come back a few minutes later and he's still standing there and you're like, I know exactly what's happening here. And you want to help him out but you know that there is no way 
that you can possibly do anything to help them out. Because if you've ever been in that situation before, you know that your wife gives you the list and you think, oh, this is easy, I've got this, this, this stuff's pretty basic. And then you, you show up to the store and who knew that there were so many different types of ketchup? I mean, my goodness, why in the world are there so many different types of ketchup? And you have no idea which one she always gets. You just know that there's always ketchup in the house when you need it. And so your first thought is, well, I need to call home and ask her, you know, what it is that she wants. I need to go back to the source. But guess what? You forgot your cell phone. And then the panic sets in. And you start looking at it all and trying to figure out which of these labels do I recognize? Which one looks familiar? Uh, It's process of elimination. You have all these crazy math formulas going on in your head. And the sense of dread just gets thicker and thicker and thicker the longer you stand there because you know no matter how long I look at all these bottles of ketchup, no matter how much I study this and try to reason this out, it is inevitable I am going to come home with the wrong bottle of ketchup. This is exactly how we are with love, Paul is saying. That without Jesus, without the connection to Jesus Christ in our life, being able to go back to the source and figure out exactly how it is we love, exactly the right type, exactly what we should do in this particular situation to love these people well, we can look at it, we can study it, we can pour all of our resources and time and energy into it, and inevitably we are going to get it wrong. And so as we come to the end of verse 5 here, he says it is, love is not irritable and it is not resentful. And, and this morning we're just going to kind of put irritability to the side. We kind of touched on that last week and we're just going to talk about resentfulness. And what it is and what it does and how it happens and then how Christ helps us to overcome this inclination that we have in our life. He says, so love isn't, Jesus isn't resentful, but we are. The word here for, that he uses for resentful literally means to keep count. You and I are inherently, naturally, really good accountants. We are great at keeping a running tally in our minds of all of the ways people have wronged us, all of the times that they have said things to us, and we don't even realize that we're keeping count. We don't even realize that it's going on. It actually doesn't take us any energy to hang on to the wrongs that have been done to us in our life. And yet in the moment that we have the ability to possibly express all the ways someone has hurt us, all the ways that they have done us wrong, all of these things come flooding back into our mind. And we can list them off one after another after another. Paul says love doesn't do this. Love lets go of things. But ourselves apart from Jesus. This is exactly what we do and we see it and it's why. It's why we know exactly how many times we've been passed up for a raise. It's why we can say and list all of the derogatory things and comments our mother-in-law has ever said to us. It's exactly why when I walk into a room with my kids and I say, what in the world is going on? What happened? I immediately am hit with a laundry list of things that their sibling has done to them. Well, they hit me. They pinched me. They touched me. They took, they took my toy. They're breathing wrong. They're just ugly. It's because it is ingrained in us naturally because we are the center of our own universe. And, and when we are wronged, that is something to take note of. That everything in the world gets flipped upside down when our own world is wrecked. And so our minds just naturally are able to hang on to the wrongs that are done to us. 
And the thing about it is, it doesn't even matter if we know that this is wrong. It doesn't matter how much we tell ourselves that it's not right, that we should let go of these things. Because it is such a part of who we are. It is so ingrained in us. It doesn't matter how much we try to convince ourselves that we need to let go of things, even for our own health. Because this is the one issue that Paul lists out here in these two verses that we can the most easily wash our hands of. This is the easiest one for us to step back and say, wait a second, this isn't my fault. See, these other things that he lists, things such as arrogance or rudeness, insisting on our own way, even being irritable, that is stuff that at some level we have to come to some ownership of, that we shouldn't be arrogant. Yeah, I get that it's not right to be prideful, and I shouldn't be prideful. It's hard. I struggle with it, but I know I'm working on it. I'm, I'm letting God take care of that in me. I, I think we all know that we shouldn't be shameless in our calculations of, of people around us. We know that it's not right to constantly seek our own way, but resentfulness, bitterness in our life, is the one thing in this entire list that we can look at and we can say, hey, wait a second, I didn't want any of this. I would have no reason to be bitter or resentful towards that person if they didn't wrong me. Resentment is only possible when we have been wronged by someone. Whether it's intentional or not, there is a place in our mind that we can go to and we can always say, hey, the reason we're in this situation Situation. The reason I feel this way towards them is because they started it. They did it. I didn't want any of this. I just want to go along to get along. And this is where it begins. This is where it always begins first. That we have plausible deniability that it is not our fault. At the, at the root of it all, we can say, they began it. They need to end it. The reality is, though, that while it may begin here and we can deny having begun the issue, it does not stay there. Another meaning of this word, this is one of those words in Greek that has like a bunch of different meanings depending on where it's used in, um, in, in different contexts that can kind of have shades of those meanings all at the same time. So it's, it, it's kind of it's this word that when you kind of look into it, it takes you like a, a long time to read about everything that it possibly could have meant in different ways that it was used, even by someone like Paul, how he uses it across his letters in, in so many different fashions. Another, uh, beyond just meaning simply to uh, take account of things, another meaning that Paul would often use this uh, word to describe it is uh, devising mischief. That love is not something that devises mischief. That, but when we begin to take account of things, when we begin to hang on to all the ways that someone has wronged us, to all the things that we take offense to, before long we are not going to be able to help ourselves but begin to grow in a way that we feed off of this feeling of hurt and having been wronged. It actually creates a codependent relationship that feeds, that, that we need, that, that we actually get something out of this. Something out of uh, this feeling of superiority because we've been wronged and people have done it to us. Uh, Leon Seltzer is a psychologist and trying to explain this, he says, Frankly, it's all too easy to hamper ourselves by falling into the trap of righteously obsessing about our injuries or outrages. 
Doing so does afford us the gratification of feeling that we're better than our, or morally superior to the source of our wrongs. Even if this bitterness in our life never turns into outwardly acting against the people that have wronged us, outwardly putting things into place to see their downfall and their demise, we will grow into a mindset of moral superiority over them that at some point actually becomes like this warm blanket to us that we feed off of. That we actually feel naked without it. That, that it, it's actually something that when, when confronted with it and, and people tell us, look, I, I think the bitterness has gotten a hold of you. I think you're holding resentment against these people. It is, it, it is something that has become such a part of our identity that, that we get so much worth from, that we get this feeling of moral superiority. And, and we like that idea that when confronted with it and, telling, and people telling us that we need to let it go, we actually are, we say, but I, I don't want to. It's actually gotten to a point that I would rather have this and, and be eaten up by it than let it go and offer forgiveness. I think the reason that Paul brings this up now, of all the things that Paul could say, love is not this way, why, did, why does he list uh, these things? Arrogance, rudeness, um, insisting on its own way, irritability and resentfulness. Well, I, I think the reason he brings up resentfulness is he's hearkening back to something that he talked about a few chapters b- before in 1 Corinthians chapter 8. He says there in 1 Corinthians 8, uh, verses 1, and three, 1 through 3, he says, Now concerning food offered to idols... We know that all of us possess knowledge. This knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. If anyone imagines that he knows something, he does not yet know as he ought to know. But if anyone loves God, he is known by God. And so you say, well, what does this have to do with what Paul is writing about here with love? Because obviously he's talking about something else. The, the issue here that Paul is addressing in chapter 8 is food sacrifice to idols, and this was a big uh, source of concern in the early church. That there was, a, as part of idolatry, idol worship, paganism, uh, there was food that would be offered to these idols, and, and, and having been offered, after all the ceremonies and everything like that, people would eat the food. And the worry was is that the, this, would, this was idolatry. This was part of paganism. And so to do this was associating yourself with false gods. Well, Paul says, he says, look, we all possess knowledge. All of us possess knowledge. And, and scholars believe that what he's referring to is, is the knowledge that these idols are not actually real. And so that food sacrifice to idols that aren't real, gods that aren't real, isn't that big of a deal. So whether or not you eat it, it doesn't, it doesn't mean anything in terms of your salvation. What's more is the knowledge that it, it is an issue of the heart. It is where is your heart oriented? Is your heart oriented to God or is it oriented to these other things? Is it oriented to what these idols represented? Oftentimes money, power, sex, all, all, all the different normal oldest sins that we can imagine. Is that where your heart is going or is your heart oriented towards God? And so he says, look, yes, we get it. All of us possess the knowledge that these idols are not real, and so you could eat this food. It's it's not that big of a deal. The problem 
was that this knowledge was resorting in a source of pride. Remember last week we talked about the word for arrogance that Paul uses literally means to puff up. He says that's exactly what was going on here with this food that was sacrificed to idols. It was producing in them a knowledge that puffed them up. It it was producing a sense of pride in which they were putting down other believers. Other believers that were getting hung up on this. Other believers that were saying you can't eat it or I myself can't eat it. They were looking at them and saying, what's your issue? Why, Why is that a problem for you? Don't you know that these idols aren't real? It's not that big of a deal. What's more is they weren't taking other believers, brothers and sisters, into account and looking at them and how this was affecting them. That that this was something that for some of them, they couldn't couldn't make that separation in their mind. And and that if they saw other brothers and sisters in Christ eating food that had been sacrificed to idols, they would be tempted to do the same. And in doing that, they would find themselves pulled into some of the other practices that that usually was associated with as well. A lot of immoral things that are an issue. And so Paul says it's not knowledge. It's not a knowledge that, that, that gives you pride in who you are and that you can figure things out for yourself and stand on your own. But it's love that matters. Love that builds up. Love that builds up yourself and love that builds up God and love that builds up the people around you. That is what is most important. And so it doesn't matter what you think you know. The thing that matters is who you know. There at the very end, verse 3, it says, But if anyone loves God... He is known by God. That it's our love in God that needs to be the foundation of our life. It's our love in God that is, through that, everything is poured out from. So Paul's saying that anything that gets in the way of love, even if it's something as good as knowledge, is an issue. Because that will get in the way of our relationship with God. This knowledge that, that these Corinthian Christians had uh, that the f- idols weren't real and so food sacrificed to idols weren't that big of a deal. It was resulting in a pride where they weren't even concerned with consulting God about it. They weren't concerned with praying through and saying, God, I, I know that this is true, but is it affecting other people in a negative way? They, they didn't even care that whether or not they knew God. They knew the right thing. They knew the right answer. And so why does this, why do I go back here and talk about this issue in relationship to resentfulness and and why Paul is bringing it up? Because Paul isn't just telling us. He's not just telling the Corinthian church here that love isn't resentfulness. He is warning everyone that ever reads this passage about what bitterness will do. Bitterness will not just wreck your relationship with the people that you are resentful towards. Bitterness, when it takes hold in your life, will wreck everything else, starting with your relationship with God. When there is a feeling of wrong that you will not let go of, and what's more is you feed it and it feeds off of you, it will grow in such a way in which your relationship with God will begin to deteriorate and be destroyed because it will take up room in which it pushes love systematically out of your life. What Paul is doing here is giving a warning. And, And it really is the difference between telling your kids not to play in the street and telling your kids to not eat food off the floor. 
we, we tell our kids not to play in the street because if they play in the street, they're going to get run over. It's a life or death issue. Uh, we tell our kids not to eat off the floor because it's nasty. Um, and we'd rather them not do that. Um, but do they eat off the floor? Yeah, they do. And do we like yell and scream and like run and like grab them and like do the Heimlich maneuver so they spit it out? No, we just kind of go back to like scrolling through our phones because they just ate off the floor. We react very differently if we see our kids running out into the street. Paul is saying this is what resentfulness is. It's the difference between playing in the street and eating food off the floor, and it is the former. Because it creates a kind of knowledge in us that only works to puff us up. We, we see ourselves as justified, and we see them as wrong. We see ourselves as righteous and them as unrighteous, and we know that's the truth. We see ourselves as deserving of grace and mercy and apologies and reward and condolences and admonitions of how strong and brave we are. And we see them as completely the opposite. And what's more is we know that that's the truth. And so we begin to desire for them to get what they deserve. And, what's, and we want nothing more than that to happen. It, it becomes, if given long enough, what consumes us, what defines us, what be, becomes the purpose of our life. All of our conversa- conversations drift in that direction. And we can't think about anything other than what they did to us and what they deserve. Paul is yelling at us to get out of the street. Don't play with this. Don't, don't take this as something that just happens, that, that we all do it, that, it, that it's just a natural part of life. Don't, don't fall into the trap of saying, well, this wouldn't have happened if they just hadn't hurt me in the first place, if they weren't such a jerk. And if they would apologize, it'd all be all over. It's so easy for us to wash our hands of this when there is so much that we can do to get ourselves out of it. And he says, but if you don't do that, if you don't take that chance, if you won't take that step, it's going to lead you down a path where your focus is going to be on those who have hurt you rather than on God. It's going to bring you to a place where your desire will be for retribution and vindication rather than God's will to be done. And the scariest part of it all is that if these things that you desire so greatly do not happen, if you do not see that individual, those people, that institution get what it deserves in a timely enough manner, you will find yourself blaming God for everything that has happened to you and why they still haven't had to pay for what they did to you. I think a really good way to just sum all this up, and so maybe I could have just said that from the start. Uh, Joyce Meyer uh, says, I, I know from personal experience how damaging it can be to live with bitterness and unforgiveness. It's like taking poison and hoping your enemy will die. And it really is that harmful to us to live this way. We think it's just one relationship. We think it's just between us and them, and they started it, and so it's on them to make the first move. But 
If we allow resentfulness to take hold anywhere in our life, it will wreck our entire life. This is why the author of Hebrews in chapter 12 says, See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, and by it many become defiled. Don't kid yourself. This is not an issue just between you and them. This is an issue between you and God, between you and your spouse, between you and your family, between you and your church, between you and your small group. Because if you allow bitterness to persist, it is a poison that spreads through everything and to everything that it touches. It is not content with staying where it is, but it is a monster that needs to be fed and it will devour you and everyone around you. See to it that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble because by it many become defiled. So if that isn't depressing enough, that this is who we are, this is what we do, this is natural to us to keep an accounting of all the wrongs that are done to us and then when we do that, when we find ourselves in that place, this is what happens as a result of it. We're left thinking, what in the world is the option? How, how do we find ourselves out of this? And I wanted to maybe try to give you a little bit more than we did last week, where last week we said, hey, it's just more of Jesus and less of you. And that is still the truth. That, that is always the truth in our life. But I think there's some very practical ways that we can begin to uh, instill this and grow a, the um, a destruction of bitterness in our life. And I think one of the best examples of this in Scripture is actually uh, the life of Joseph. Uh, if you know the story of Joseph, you know that early on in his life he ran into some issues with some brothers. We're not going to get into like who, you know, who was at fault. Joseph probably could have phrased the things uh, a little bit better. But he rubbed his family the wrong way in a few ways. And so having done that, his, his brothers, not dealing with their own jealousy and their own resentment, uh, throw Joseph into a well. Uh, plotting to kill him, and then eventually uh, they actually end up selling him off into slavery in Egypt. And, and then Joseph uh, goes through it, it, multiple different trials because of that, has, has a really hard life, and yet on the backside of that actually ends up earning favor with Pharaoh and uh, then is put in a position uh, in which he was actually able to uh, save uh, countless numbers of lives from a, a uh, seven-year famine that ends up taking place in Egypt. And so Joseph is really, when, when you look in Scripture, one of the prime candidates for bitterness in his life. That he experienced hurt and, and deep hurt on a level that many of us probably can't even fathom. Uh, some of us have experienced with having been hurt from family members that we should have and did trust. That family is, is the one place that, that these types of wrongs should not spring out of. And yet when they do the harvest is ripe for resentfulness to take hold in our life. And yet it doesn't in Joseph's life. And there's an interaction between him and his brothers that just shows us this is how, this is what it looks like to combat, to, to actually choose to love the way that God loves us, the way that Jesus displays love, and make sure that bitterness never takes hold in our life. There in Genesis uh, chapter 45, verses 4 through 8, this is the interaction between him and his brothers. He, he says to his brothers, he says, come near to me, please. After, after having told them who he is and, and revealed himself to them, and he says, 
I am your brother Joseph whom you sold into Egypt, and now do not be distressed or angry with yourselves because you sold me here. For God sent me before you to preserve life. For the famine has been in the land these two years, and there are yet five years in which there will be neither plowing nor harvest. And God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant on earth and to keep alive for you many survivors. So it was not you who sent me here, but God. He has made me a father to Pharaoh and lord of all of his house and ruler over the land of Egypt. And so as we look at... Uh, Joseph here with his brothers in, in this interaction, it, it'd be kind of easy to walk away from this and, and maybe one of, one of the things uh, uh, mistakenly think that, hey, if, if given enough time and if things work out right in everybody's favor, that's the key to overcoming bitterness. That if you can just get to a place where you can look back on it and say, you know what, yeah, that, that, was, that was not the greatest thing that you did to me, but it turned out okay. It turns out I'm in a better job now, and I, I'm a whole lot happier. And so, actually, thanks, you did, you did me a favor. That's not what's going on here. No, I, actually, the, the, lesson, the first lesson that we can learn from Joseph is the first step in us combating bitterness in our life is to trust again. Is, is to probably do One of the hardest things. Trust has been broken in Joseph's own life. Trust was broken and it was broken from a place that he felt secure. A place that he should have been able to trust in. And so the key here though isn't that we should just simply trust in the people that broke our trust. Trust in the ones that have hurt us. But actually to trust in the right place. Notice in just these four verses. Joseph says three different times, God has sent me. Joseph chose at some point in his life to trust that God was over everything. That he had the power over it all. And that while what his brothers did was horrible and hurtful, and it cut him to the heart that God still had power even over that. And and that as Paul says in Romans that not only does God have power over everything but he is also for your good, my good, our good and for his glory. That we can put ourselves, our good, even our hurts into perspective when we understand God's over it. He's still all-powerful. He's still on the throne. None none of that has changed, and his faithfulness endures forever. And so because of that, we we, we can say, okay, maybe I'm not the center of the universe, first of all. And and so maybe the things that are done to me that are wrong, they still hurt and, and, and they still matter, and yet they haven't flipped the world upside down. God's still there, and so I can trust in him. I can trust that he cares, that he sees these things, and, and he is working these even to my good, even though I may not see it, even though I may not see where it comes, even though in this lifetime I, I may not see that play out. I can trust that. The key is to trust that God is able to still use even the hard things, even the wrong things in our life for his will, for his glory, and even for our good. 
If we can grab onto this, if we can begin to trust, because bitterness at its heart will, will, will lead us into a place where it's hard for us to trust not just the people that hurt us, but everyone, even God. If we can start here, this perspective, this idea, this sensitivity in our heart to open ourselves and be vulnerable again, it opens the floodgates in our life to God's grace. It's this issue, this issue of trust that will cut us off from the grace of Jesus. That we won't be willing to put ourselves out there again. We won't be willing to let ourselves flap in the wind, not knowing if we're going to have a chair to sit in at the end of the song. We will be calculating. We will try to survive. We will try to preserve ourselves. But if we can, in our heart, truly trust God that he is still in control, we can remain sensitive to the leading of the Spirit. And what's more is we can allow him to show us his grace. We can allow him to show us his grace and then extend his grace. Because that's exactly what Joseph does. So God pours out his grace in such a way that Joseph can't possibly hang on to it. And so then he just, as a result, has to give the grace, the same kind of grace that God has showed him, he has to pour out on those around him. He has to even give it to those who have hurt him the most, his brothers. As you read about bitterness and resentfulness in articles online and kind of trying to look up what does, what does like the psychological community say about it, how it works in our, in our minds and all these different things, every psychologist, every article will tell you the thing that you have to do is give Forgiveness. So you have to extend forgiveness to the people that have hurt you. But as I would read those I, I, articles, I would think that feels like asking people to do the very thing that they can't do. That when we don't have the trust in Jesus that Joseph displays in his life here, how in the world am I supposed to be able to forgive people that have hurt me so deeply? How in the world am I supposed to get past what they did to me, if I can't believe that actually it can be used for good in some way. When we're the center of the universe, how do we forgive the wrong that has just disrupted and destroyed everything? It feels like our hands are tied in how we respond. But trusting God enables us to choose that we no longer have to harbor bitterness in our hearts, or we no longer have to lash out and slander, or we no longer have to do what they did to us. Instead, we can recognize what God has done for us. That he has extended grace and forgiveness to us when all we had done was wrong him. And that actually the very reason that we can say we have any life at all, that we have any purpose, that we have any hope of eternity is because of the grace of forgiveness in Jesus. And so in trusting that that is what God is still up to, not only in our lives, but in the world around us, we can then receive that grace and let that grace flow through us as well. We can choose to live out of the grace that has been given to us through the forgiveness of Jesus. That's what Joseph decides to do. So the first thing is, is, is to trust in God and to trust that he is over everything. And, and then by doing that, we open ourselves up to be able to receive his forgiveness and his grace. And then also not just receive it, but actually give it away. And the third thing that we see then Joseph doing is giving grace. 
But he actually does something interesting. This is just like uh, where Jesus is talking to the disciples and, and he's asked, how many times should we forgive someone? Is it 70 or, or, or 7 times? And Jesus says, it's not 70 or 7, it's 70 times 7 times. That actually Jesus' words and his teaching there is that we should take forgiveness to the next level. That, that, that it should go the next step. We should always be willing to go the extra mile because we know what God has given to us and we can never match, possibly match, that kind of grace. And it's this very thing that Joseph demonstrates because it's not just that he offers forgiveness in words. That he doesn't just tell his brothers it's all right. He actually goes the next step and he gives them land. He says, come down. If you continue reading there in chapter 45, he says, bring the entire family. I, I, I will put you in, in a position uh, to not just survive during this time, but actually thrive. That he give, the, the very people that saw his destruction... He gives them land and he gives them food and he provides for their life. One of the best ways to make sure that bitterness does not take hold in our life isn't just to simply be willing to offer forgiveness through our words, but to actually put our hands and our actions behind that. To look for ways that we can practically extend grace to those that have hurt us. It's the hardest thing to do, but it connects our heart to a head in a way that words alone often can't. And if we're trusting in the fact that God is over all and that his heart of forgiveness that he has extended to us is the same heart that he has for the people that wrong us the most deeply, we can trust that he is going to use even a situation such, as terrible as this for our good and for his glory. The best way to overcome bitterness isn't to get even. Isn't to pray that God would show them the error of their ways. And it isn't to set the stage for their demise. But the best way to get over bitterness in your life is to trust in and then give away the grace of Jesus. Let's pray.